When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Fred Langan, veteran journalist, former CBC television host, novelist, writer of about 2,000 obituaries. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. Fred, today on the show, Omicron is here. Without knowing precisely what the danger is, is it time to crack each other's heads open and feast on the goo inside? This reporter says yes. And beloved murderer, an obituary from Montreal omits some bloody details. Yeah. Uh, it's good to have you on Shortcuts where we talk shit about the news. Okay. This episode is brought to everybody by Andy Black, Blake Johnston, Dave Proctor, Nicholas Graham, Justin Safayeni, Ben McIntosh, Chase Fowler, and Craig. My name's Craig Solvay. Uh, I'm in Montreal. I'm a city councillor. Uh, and I really appreciate Canaland for its intelligent and varied analysis of Canadian media that helps us understand important stories through a different lens. I often find myself even jumping to the internet after a segment of Duly Noted to hear those underreported stories which should mean a lot more to us. Aussi, je dois dire que j'apprécie énormément l'effort dernièrement de l'équipe de Canaland, notamment Emily Nicolas et Nora Loreto, pour faire ressortir les analyses du Québec et le Canada francophone. C'est comme ça qu'on va mieux se comprendre la dynamique de nos médias franco et anglo. Bravo. Good job, Canaland. Tonight, the latest coronavirus variant is here in Canada. This is a wake-up call. Sounding the alarm about a new COVID-19 variant. 
It has a very high number of mutations. Why scientists warn it could be the worst strain yet. Holy shit, Fred. Just when we thought we were safe, the World Health Organization identifies a whole new variant of concern. Are you as terrified as I am about gamma? No. Wait a minute. Wait. Not gamma? It's the other no. one. It's the st- one that starts with an O. Omicron. Omicron. Gamma Gamma was the one. It was also called a variant of concern by the World Health Organization, but nobody went nuts about that one, maybe because it doesn't sound as scary as Omicron. As ominous, maybe. <laughs> you know, we're both, you know, o- o- older guys, so we remember Orson Welles' last performance as Unicron in Transformers the movie, of course. That's what I first thought. I This thing, it's like the media has had their, like their, but- their thumb on the panic button ever since the World Health Organization, you know, in, in a faster turnaround than ever before, um, they said this is a variant of concern. And it's just been nonstop scary, scary news about Omicron since the World Health Organization basically said, be afraid, be very, very afraid. I got to tell you, Fred, I have been trying to figure this. And yes, it is scary. I, I'm not trying to downplay this. But if you dig into the news reports on this, what I have ultimately learned is they don't know anything yet. Right. We don't know anything, and we don't know how serious it is. I, you know, I feel sorry for South Africa. Here was South Africa. They did the honorable thing, right? And they, uh, they, they, they found this, this new strain, and they reported it to the world. Immediately, everybody shuts the door on South Africa. So, uh, I mean, the next medium-sized country uh, that, that discovers something, maybe they're going to keep it a secret. Let's stop there for a second, because that is a really good point. You know, a lot of people, I think, are quick to think that African countries, disease, let's just shut off the, the, the there's yeah. a stereotype there. First of all, all the health officials are saying that those travel bans do nothing. If it's already in Canada, which it is, that does nothing but destroy the economies of already, you know, hurting countries. And in fact, the fact that we know this from South Africa is a measure of how good their testing regime, their surveillance of the virus is. And now we're providing a powerful disincentive for them to not report this. And now I'm just reading that media reports, they actually have found out that this uh, Omicron was first making its way around Europe before it was in South Africa. So are they going to shut off travel to Europe now? Or is this kind of like an Africa only kind of a travel ban? I just had a friend who decided not to, he was going to go to Paris and London for Christmas, New Year's. Okay. Yeah. But there's panic station tests you've got to do if you're going to take the, uh, the train from Paris to London. So uh, he said, yeah, he canceled the Paris trip. My stepson just wrote a piece for the, for the Toronto Star on uh, how the French uh, have ignored, uh, are ignoring the lockdown and the scary, the, the scariness of it all. We're, we're much more obedient in Canada. But I, I fear that that obedience has its limits. I mean, if you are a person who reads this stuff with interest and you believe what science has to tell you and you read up on Omicron and, you know, you're trying to figure out what, what should I do? It's good masks, well fitted. It's good ventilation and uh, and it's uh, getting vaccinated, two doses. So it's still an open question uh, what's going to happen here. I think we'll need at least another week or two to see if there's uh, more to it than that. It would be extremely unusual for the vaccines to be rendered useless with uh, a mutation or even several mutations like this. Everybody's already done all those things, right? I'm double vaxxed. I'm going to get another jab in in a couple of weeks, my third one. And uh, I wear a mask on the subway, but I go to restaurants and, you know, you can't drink coffee with your mask on. So uh, I don't think anything in my life is going to change because of the Omicron 
whatever. Not yet, anyhow. Yeah, let's hope. I don't want to get stuck back here ordering my groceries to my apartment and or if I'm at my place in Quebec, you know, being alone with my chickens. I don't know if they can get COVID, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we can find out. We can have a test at, at your chicken coop. Fred, this is this is news you can't use, you know? <laughs> I like that. It really is. Like it's it's not that everybody's been vaccinated, but if you're reading the news to find out what you should do, you're you're already vaccinated. If you believe the news, you believe the science, you're already vaccinated. So all you could do is overreact and maybe there will be a point where Omicron means that we can't go on any trips and we shouldn't see our family. We got to go back to severe lockdown, but we're not there yet. And I feel like some people are and you, you know, you're confirming this, some people are canceling trips, you know, out of a, an abundance of caution. And they're going back to severe lockdown out of an abundance of caution. Now, maybe some people would have done that when Gamma was announced as a variant of concern. And then it would be good yeah. news. Okay, it turns out this one's not so bad, you know? How many times, you know, because there's, there, there's an impact on your life of cutting off contact to your friends and your loved ones and denying yourself things that you need for your own well-being. And I do feel like... We in the media, we do need to tell people about this, but the way we've been telling, like, you know, it's like you make decisions about not just what the information is, but what size the font should be on the front page of the newspaper. There's also the people who haven't been vaccinated, right? So, I mean, I, I went to interview uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, I went to interview this guy and he said, um, I haven't been vaccinated. Do you mind? Well, so, I mean, we sat, you know, 10, 15 feet apart and I talked to him and whatever. I mean, uh, I guess I was there. What what am I going to do? Say no? I don't want to talk to you. I mean, so. Uh, but um, I really, I really don't understand the not getting vaxxed. Me neither. But this kind of stuff has an effect on that too, because yeah. you know the details of the Omicron thing are like they're very clear. They're saying that there's a lot of reason for concern, but it might turn out that this is no big deal. You know, the volume, the heat of the news coverage suggests that the sky is falling. But the the scientists are saying let's be concerned and careful. But we don't know yet. Now, if everything goes really, really well, this will turn out to be no big deal, right? And then the anti-vaxxers will say, oh, there it goes again. They're trying to keep us in a perpetual state of fear and panic, and uh, n nothing really bad happened. So I, I do feel like there's a, you know, a boy who cried wolf thing. Like, I think we have like a limited amount of arrows in our quiver or, or juice that, you know, like, like how many times can it work to get the public to really, really, you know, get afraid and get active? But you know, as well as I do, that the scare stories are, you know, um, you know, dog crosses street, no story. Man bites dog crossing street story, right? So this is a scare story. It makes good. I mean, it, it had those clips from national newscasts. I mean, do people think, gee, maybe I shouldn't scare the bejesus out of people? Well, uh, but they do. The thing here is that I think that a lot of a lot of news organizations are running the biggest font possible on Omicron, the scariest stories possible, not thinking that they're doing it for clicks or for eyeballs, but thinking that this is what this is what the WHO wants us to do. Let's do it. Okay, I'm guilty. Let me tell you a story. All right. In 1979, I was in Pittsburgh, and Three Mile Island happened. I rented a car, and I was in Pittsburgh going to uh, taking a course. And I drove to Three Mile Island. Here it was, this great nuclear catastrophe, which wasn't that much of a catastrophe, but we scared the bejesus out of the world. I mean, I remember there was a guy from CBS, and the reporter couldn't figure out what, what, to, uh, what to write. So, so, so the guy said, eh, throw in some shit about that Jane Fonda movie, you know, the, um, you know which was about a nuclear meltdown. Uh -huh. I 
went on the air and said, you know, this is this cloud of radioactivity could float across and uh, hit the maritime provinces in three days. Well, somebody criticized me justifiably in the paper that I was, you know, I was sensationalizing it and, uh, you know, trying to, I mean, because it was because I was scaring people and um, it was better than throwing in some stuff about whatever that movie was. So there you have it. Mea culpa. <laughs> You know, I, I grew up reading about Three Mile Island, and I think in Mad Magazine. Like To this day, uh, you just gave me news that it was no big deal. I always just had that in my brain un filed under Chernobyl. It was no big deal. Nobody died at Three Mile Island. Hmm. The confessions of uh, Fred Lang and the confessions of a newsman. Oh, well, Mad Magazine. I used to love it. <laughs> yeah, well, rest in peace to that, too. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So it's your first time here on Shortcuts, and something that we do here, Fred, is... Uh, we try to let people know if there's something in the press that didn't get enough attention that really should be duly noted. Do you have something to duly note for our listeners today? You know what I found? Last week, when the oil price was through the roof, President Biden said he was going to access the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and try to drive down prices for the beleaguered American driver. Now, the reason, of course, is that a president's approval rating operates with the gasoline price. If the gasoline price goes up, the president's approval rating goes down. So this was, you know, middle of last week. And so then on Friday, the shit hits the fan with the South African Omicron COVID case and the stock markets fell off and the oil price in the next two days went down about 20%. So Mr. Biden could have saved himself the aggro of taking out the uh, 
oil from the strategic oil reserve, which would probably do about at most three or four days of uh, average American driving. So it was a symbolic issue. It had nothing to do with reality. It had more to do with his popularity. And so what a waste of time. And still, the price of gasoline dropped uh, 11 cents a liter in Canada, you know? So there you are. It dropped anyhow. I, I totally hear you. You know, I think that we got to get over these these simplistic reactionary politics. And just this idea, like, it's, it's the one thing that the price of which is just in huge numbers over everyone's head. And it's just this sort of accepted wisdom that that's totally linked to, you know, the approval rating of the president. We're facing some pretty big challenges in the world right now. I think we have to be governing and making decisions on more than just, like, that number goes up. So now I got to do this. But it's amazing that people would think that politicians can affect the price of oil. Oil is, you know, it's a global commodity. I mean, the politicians in Saudi Arabia can affect the price of oil. They can turn the taps on and whoosh. Uh, But um, anyway, there you have it. People make silly political decisions. Duly noted. I got one as well, Fred. Uh, Until recently... It was free to file a freedom of information request in British Columbia. Oh. It was free. So so you could just, there were journalists who just like shot these things off. And we were even thinking about it. Like if you were an enterprising young journalist, you could just be like filing these things. You could file a thousand a year and maybe, you know, one in 10, one in a hundred, you actually find something, go on a fishing expedition and you could have, you know, a bunch of good stories every year. Well, uh, you know, party's over. They've now attached a cost. It's gone from zero to $10. And, uh, you know, we were just talking with the uh, with with the horrible mudslides and 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 the you know climate catastrophe in BC that we need information yeah. and journalists you know Tyler Lawson a journalist was uh, complaining about access uh, for interviews for officials in BC like never before we need to know what was going on behind closed doors and now here's this cost associated and you know a lot of journalists on Twitter are pissed off about this because you know the freedom of information system is already broken and now they're gonna they're gonna make it expensive too. I don't know. I I was wondering if like, well, maybe there's a relationship here. Maybe the fact that it's free and journalists are sending too many of these things and that's why it takes a year to get it responded to. Maybe now, you know, it's 10 bucks. Uh, It's not a terribly huge fee. So maybe that'll stop people from just doing totally blind fishing and maybe they can speed up the return. Well, 10 bucks doesn't seem much to me, but I've been doing this for, uh, I don't know, 40, almost, you know, 40 some odd years. And um, I have never filed a information request. I once phoned the OPP and asked them, do you really find, how many people do you find, the Ontario Provincial Police for people outside uh, Toronto, does the OPP ever find people for littering? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's a signs on the highway that you'll be fined for littering. Oh, that was a secret, they told me. I mean, I mean, if it takes a year to find something out, I mean, the, the story is dead and buried by then, so who cares? <laughs> oh, you know, it, sometimes people uh, slow burn, and then they get it, and then something comes back. To, I mean, it's ridiculous that it takes that long. Anyhow, it might be wishful thinking that the, uh, the, the things will speed up now. But nevertheless, something I wanted to bring to people's attention. Duly noted. Fred, are you familiar with Montreal bagels? You know, I've bought bagels there on many occasions. I spend half my time in Quebec. Actually, I can buy Fairmont bagels frozen at my store in Knowlton. And then I can also, when I'm in Montreal, I always drop by and there they are plunking away. And there's nothing like a Montreal bagel. 
nothing like a Montreal bagel. Montreal bagels are considered the best in the world, and 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 the best of the best are you know it's kind of a tight competition between Saint Viateur and and Fairmount. I'm agnostic, uh, but Fairmont Bagels is the one, and, and they're nice in the supermarket, but if you get them at the store, everybody knows this place, and everybody, you know, visits Montreal, lines up at this family-run business, Fairmont Bagels, and a lot of people know the Schlafman family that runs it, and uh, the son of that family, Daniel Schlafman. Fred, on November 5th, the Montreal Gazette reported that the bodies of Daniel Schlafman, age 31, and an unidentified 25-year-old woman were found dead in a Mile End neighborhood apartment. Both died of stab wounds. Global News reported uh, this past week that Montreal police um, said that they, they can't yet call the incident a femicide because the investigation is still ongoing, but what they believe is that this was a murder-suicide. That Daniel Schlafman killed this 25-year-old woman um, identified as a sex worker, but not identified by name, and then he took his own life. Just under a week after the deaths, when the Montreal Gazette ran another thing on Daniel Schlafman, and you can find it on their website, sort of a subsection of the Montreal Gazette's website, and it's identified as an obituary for Daniel Schlafman. And what you'll find there is a glowing memorial to Daniel Schlafman, uh, where he's remembered for his compassion, sensitivity, generosity, loyalty. He would drop anything to help a friend or a loved one. He had the ability to make anybody laugh and brighten their day. He was well-liked and respected by his coworkers. And if you want to uh, make a donation in his memory, they've set up a, a memorial fund. And uh, there's no mention of the circumstances of his death or that he, he is, uh, it seems, a person who killed a sex worker as one of his last acts on this planet. Uh, Fred, this was all brought to my attention by a listener, Adam Deutsch, who asks, this condolence message, it makes no mention of the woman who Schlafman stabbed or that he's done anything untoward at all. And uh, Adam Deutsch writes, am I alone in thinking that there's something very wrong with this coverage? What do you think, Fred? I think Adam Deutsch is wrong uh, because as an obit writer, I don't call this an obit. I call this a death notice. And a death notice is something put in by the family and it's handled by the advertising department. Okay. So at the Gazette or at the Globe and Mail where I write now, the advertising department and the editorial department are separate. The call goes in to the advertising department, and the advertising department takes the death notice or, or, or it's emailed to them. Now, the editorial department, the people who wrote the story, they haven't got a clue. They don't know that this death notice is going in. And so the family, obviously, are going to write something glowing about their son, who is an alleged murderer. The circumstances of the, of the murder-suicide uh, sound pretty convincing, but uh, it, it's still alleged as we're taught when we're sure. junior journalists. But an obituary is, for instance, when I write a long-form obituary, an editorial obituary, I often use the death notice from the family as a basis. But, you know, the death notice from the family, can be you never can believe anything. Say, say it's a, a war veteran, and I've done a lot of war veterans over the last um, 32 years that I've been writing obituaries, always on the side, you know, it was sort of like a, it was an, an odd freelance gig, but there you have it. But, you know, people get all kinds of things wrong. There are family, you cannot trust anything that's in a death notice. Now, it's not the job of the advertising department to check the facts in a death notice. It is the job of the advertising department to make sure the person is dead. 
because you could have someone running a prank, okay? So uh, the Globe or the Gazette's advertising department will call the family to make sure that the person is dead or they will call the funeral home. In this case, uh, the arrangements were done by uh, a funeral home in Montreal, Paperman and Sons, which handles a lot of Jewish funerals. And, uh, And so they would make the call to Paperman, which they've done. As a matter of fact, I wrote an obituary of one of the pa- members of the Paperman family. So uh, they're well-known, and that's who the, the Gazette would have called back. Now, nobody would write a long-form obituary, which is basically a news story, a narrative news story, without mentioning. But as a matter of fact, if it wasn't in the lead, you'd get fired. So this is fascinating stuff, and I think that you're right that Adam is wrong in a sense, and actually that that I was wrong, because when I read that email from Adam, my initial reaction also was, you know, this really does look like maybe this is the Montreal Gazette protecting a beloved member of the Anglo community, showing a lot of respect and deference and compassion to his family, but at the expense of the memory yes. of this unnamed sex worker, yeah. you know, no regard for how her family might feel to read all these wonderful things about the man who allegedly killed their daughter. And that was the consideration in our newsroom, or at least the feeling, you know, my colleague Kieran, he said, you know, if this guy had killed his, his wife or his mother and not a sex worker, you know, would the Gazette still have run this obit? And they would have. It seems like they would have. Yeah. And I mean, to read, I've got it right in front of me and to read the death notice and know what the man did. It's like it's 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 Monty Python-esque. I mean, it's it's neither his death nor the death of the tragic death of the sex worker is in any way amusing. But, I mean, this is like profound irony, right? This glowing death notice, I think maybe could have erred on the side of uh, caution and not run it at all. I mean, uh, anyway, that's just my opinion. But, I mean, there's no way that the editorial department of the Montreal Gazette had any clue. Although all they had to do was run this name, through Google, and they would have come up with the um, they would have come up with a news story. So you know, Daniel Swaffman then put click news, and you'd have it right away. The more that we kind of you know dug into this, the more interesting it got to me. Anyhow. You know, if Adam Deutsch is wrong and if we were wrong in our uh, initial offense, you know, or the way that we rea- reacted to this, yeah. that this was an error on the part of uh, the editorial apparatus of the Gazette, I think we can be forgiven because I spoke to a number of obit writers and all of them said what you said. That's not an obit. It's a death notice. Death notices are written by the family yeah. and there's no editorial vetting beyond just that the person died. However, it is listed as an obit. And now this job, it's not even necessarily the ad department. There are like third party, like ancestry.ca, which I think is somehow connected. Because if you look on ancestry.ca is on the webpage, I think that they are like some kind of third party provider that actually handles the transaction. I, I you know, it's, it's hard to get clarity. I think it's called legacy, right? Legacy. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, you know, and, and they do, I, I went through the process of like, uh, you know, what is it like when you try to buy one yeah. of these uh, death notices? And, and it calls it an obit the whole way through. And, you, you know, you can say whatever you like. And the only thing it asks you is, you know, what, what's the name of the funeral home? Yeah. And I think that to the reader, you are looking at the paper and you're, and no, no one calls it death notices. They say, who's in the obits today? And even as a researcher, and I know as when I'm researching yeah. a news story that, you know, the, the copy came from the family. 
but I think that people still do feel like I rely on when I'm researching somebody who's dead, mm-hmm. I find, okay, here's the, the date of the death. Here's who they're survived by. They won the Purple Heart for bravery. It's in the newspaper. I think people can be forgiven. Well, I agree with you. On every Saturday mornings are the, the, the Saturday is the day that everyone likes to get the death notices in. And they're called obituaries by the paper. I mean, you know, when I tell people that I that I write obituaries, they say, oh, does the family pay you? I said, no, the paper pays me. There aren't that many papers that still write editorial obits. I can, in the English language, uh, the Globe and Mail is the only one that still uh, has a, a daily uh, full-blown obituary. Um, the New York Times has, has editorial obituaries. They're, they're excellent, aren't they? and the Globe reprints some of them. The best English language obituaries, apart from mine, of course, are in the Daily Telegraph, and that's where I learned to write obituaries. I was a stringer for the Daily Telegraph in the late 80s and early 90s, uh-huh. and the Irish Times. Oh, my God, the Irish Times is the most literate paper in the Anglosphere, and, I mean, they write a wonderful obituary. I wrote James Cross's obituary, for instance, the uh, man who was kidnapped by the FLQ, But uh, James Cross was born in Ireland. The Irish Times did a spectacular obituary of James Cross. Anyway. It's an interesting area of journalism. And I know that a lot of people are taught in journalism school, like, you know, because this is like the part of the job where you've got to call people who are mourning and grieving and ask them questions. And sometimes, like you say, they have things wrong. You know, They, they, they believe that granddad did things that he didn't do. And you've got to go and actually fact check this stuff at this moment of mourning. Yeah. The, uh, well, in the case of the war, I have, you know, you get, you build up contacts. Uh, the chief historian at the, uh, at the Department of National Defense in Ottawa, I've got his home number. But, you know, obituaries used to be the dog job of the young journalist. You'd have to come in and write these things. Mm-hmm. And then the modern obituary, the way they're written now, was invented in the 1980s by a man called um, Montgomery Massingbread, and uh, he, Montgomery hyphen Massingbread, uh, who wrote uh, obituaries for the Daily Telegraph. And after he reinvented it. How so? Make it interesting. The story is not like a typical news story in which, you know, you put all the, the stuff in the first paragraph so you can cut from the bottom. It's like a, built like a triangle. Instead, it's a narrative built like a box so that the second to last sentence can be just as important as the first sentence. Yeah. Massingbread came from uh, Debrett's, which is the Bible of the English aristocracy. So he put a lot of snobbery into it. He put, uh, you, you want to know where the person was born, who they were married to. Believe me, one of the most difficult things you come across in writing an obituary is the second wife. Oh, my goodness. The second wife doesn't want anything said about the first wife, and usually. usually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've run across that on more than one occasion. But I mean, the Telegraph does things like they say, um, he was a cad. Imagine, I've, I mean, I've, I've read that more than once. Imagine calling someone a cad in an obituary. And uh, by the sounds of things, he probably deserved to be called a cad. And so uh, the Gazette and the National Post, and I used to write obituaries for the National Post, like maybe three a week, and they were shorter than the Globe ones. And I used to do this while I was working at the CBC. So for many years, I used a pseudonym. I used the name James McCready. Why? It was a family joke. James McCready, my great-grandfather came from Ireland in 1870 and married a woman named 
Bridget McCready, who is the sister of James McCready. So everybody in our family gets buried under a stone in Montreal, the Cotonage Cemetery in Montreal. And the big name on the front is James McCready. So I became James McCready. That's your graveyard name. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Fred, all the obit writers I've spoken to speak so reverently about and how much they love the job of writing obits. It seems like there's just something about celebrating people's lives and not necessarily wonderful people all the time, but just... uh, and they're all so quick to make this distinction. That's a death notice. But I, I feel like we've stumbled upon a real vulnerability. Like you can basically just pay to play uh, and enter, just write copy that doesn't get vetted. And it's a pretty important public record, you know, the, the death notices and papers. Yeah, I think that probably um, after this incident, maybe uh, the advertising department might uh, – might find, but I mean, you know, these people, the people who take the ads are sort of they're copy like copy takers in the old newspapers. You know, people are on the phone; they just take the information. Yeah, it's not an editorial position. They're trying to sell. Like, what's the limit? Like, if if the Portapic uh, mass murderer, somebody called in a death notice for him about what a great guy he was. Like, yeah. you, you would hope that somebody they're not in an editorial part of the newspaper, or maybe they're off at some legacy or ancestry site. You'd hope somebody would be like, no, this is like this can't run in the newspaper. Well, you would think that maybe the editor department might spot it on. I don't know how many days this ran in the Montreal Gazette, but maybe it shouldn't have run two days, if you know what I mean. You know, I'm, I, I have a newsletter that I publish every week, and at the end of the newsletter, I put in essay of the week. And so what I do is I take chapters from books I've written and put them in there, and I also put in obituaries. This week, I'm going to do an obituary of a complete a criminal a despicable person, a guy named Imre Finta, who died in 2003, who was a Hungarian war criminal, sent uh, thousands of Jews to their death. And uh, Canada was trying to get rid of him because he came to this country and was relatively successful. But uh, anyway, I'm going to run that this week. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll mention this incident in the, in my newsletter. It would be it would be interesting. I think you've you've earned the plug. What's what's your? It's a Substack. What's your newsletter called? <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, Fred Langan Business News. Fred Langan Business News. Fred, that shortcuts for this week. Thank you for joining me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at uh, Jesse at CanadaLand.com and I read everything that you send. Fred, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at uh, fred.langan at gmail.com and then uh, Fred Langan Business News on um, Substack. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, we can send you ad-free versions of all of our podcasts when you go to canadaland.com slash join or hit the link in the show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. 
And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.